Welcome back to America's Constitution and part two of our in interview and discussion with Neil Katyal, who has asked that we stop identifying him as the great Neil Katyal. <laughs> <laughs> so we won't say the great Neil Katyal. I promise we won't say that. <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Neil Katyal. <laughs> and, of, and of course, Akhil Amar is here with us again, as always, since it is America's Constitution. So this time, last time we talked a lot about um, Neil's background and how he, you know, reached uh, the various pinnacles that he's uh, achieved. Um, but I think we left uh, an interesting story out of his uh, biography. Um, Akhil, why don't you tell us about it? Well, uh, our audience knows that I'm uh, very uh, proud of being a teacher. Neil talked about being a teacher himself um, in his last episode, and I used to think that I taught law, and people who know Yale Law School snicker at that, um, because uh, some people are of the view that no law is taught at the Yale Law School. And I used to think I teach law, uh, and uh, I now think, actually, upon reflecting on my career, I teach students. Um, and I'm really proud of my students. And on my own website, there's actually a list of notable students. And Andy, you've, you've actually updated the website from time to time. Um, and, and one of the things that I particularly, and, and, and Neil is, of course, on that list, um, but one of the things I especially love is introducing my notable students to each other. Um, they're not always contemporaries of each other. So one of them might take me in you know, my, my third year as on the faculty and someone else on my 30th year on the faculty, and yet I have this special connection to each of them, and, and I kind of think about them as like my kids in a certain way, and I want them to, to, to meet each other. They're siblings of sorts, even if they're from different generations. So, so one of my favorite students, obviously, is, is Neil, and he's doing this two-parter with us. Um, and another one who's agreed, by the way, to uh, do a podcast with us at some uh, future point um, in the next uh, few months is the uh, president of the National Constitution Center. His name is Jeff Rosen. The great Jeff Rosen. The great Jeff Rosen. And, um, and at one point, and not too long after Neil graduated from Yale Law School, I introduced him to Jeff Rosen, who actually had been a, a student in a slightly different uh, generation. And, um, and that turned out to be sort of an, an interesting um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, 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 episode, um, where, uh, where, uh, an interesting introduction when, you know. Do you like, want me to tell that part? Yeah, when, when, okay. when, when Jeff met Neil, just like, you know, when Madison met Jefferson or something like that. So when, when, when Jeff met Neil. <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me back again on your great podcast. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yes, so Akil, uh, um, this guy, Jeff Rosen, graduated from Yale Law School in 1992 in the spring. I started Yale Law School in the fall of 1992, so I just missed him by a few months. And after I graduated from law school, um, and I moved to Washington, D.C. to clerk for Justice Breyer, you said, hey, you should meet one of my favorite former students, this guy Jeff Rosen. You remind me of each other. And I said to you, um, Akil, Jeff is covering the Supreme Court at that point for the New Republic magazine. And I said I was concerned about meeting a journalist while I was a law clerk. 
And you said, and I, I've never forgotten, you said, no, this guy is totally stand-up. You can trust him. And so I invited Jeff over to my house uh, for some wine on a Wednesday night at 9 o'clock. Um, and uh, we just really liked each other. And uh, so I invited him the next Wednesday at 9 for a glass of wine. And, um, and again, liked each other more. And we did this over and over again really for three years he never pumped me for any sort of information and it was lovely i mean we just chatted about ideas at that point we were still fully in our law, law geekdom um and a keeling out um and uh, <laughs> um and we just really had a great time intellectual largely but also you know at that point there were many glasses of wine he knew everything about me basically inside and out and after three years of this he said you know neil i'd really like you to meet my sister and i said jeff i didn't know you had a sister and he said yes and uh, i've kind of always thought you guys might be right for one another but i wanted to be sure three years three years <laughs> three years it's just a day 150 <laughs> bottles of wine that's the more important thing Andy, and you think you're an, an impressive interviewer <laughs> <laughs> so yes at that point he had cross-examined me every which way to sunday and uh, i met joanna fell in love right away um, engaged within about 100 days of meeting her um, and have been now been happily married for 21 years. And I was at the wedding, um, and uh, which is up in um, was up in uh, uh, Jeff's. Uh, uh, they've got a, an interesting family property, family compound, uh, not too far from Woodstock. Um, it began, and, and Vanitha, of course, was there too. It began one or two p.m. or so uh, with Neil riding. Uh, in um, on a white horse um, in flowing white garb in in uh, Hindu fashion, I, I don't know who looked more uncomfortable, Neil or the horse. Um, there was a, f uh, uh, a few hours later the breaking of the glass under the, the chuppah. Um, Guido Calabresi, for whom Neil clerked, um, was was one of the uh, the celebrants. Um, it ended at about. 10 or 11 p.m. with Jeff and Joanna's dad singing Sunrise, Sunset um, in this, uh, under this billowy um, white tent, though not a dry eye in the house. Um, um, the one thing, you see, Hindus and Jews. Andy, you're, you're in, in a Jewish tradition, and you know my family is, is Hindu. Um, um, and, and the Hindus and the Jews, they both do food very well. They do weddings very well. They do food at weddings um, very well. Some some people I think uh, referred to this as a as a Hindu wedding. I I've always thought of it as an Om Shalom wedding, and it was very special to me because you know I was thinking yes may, maybe this wouldn't have happened you know but for the fact that that you know I fell in love with Jeff and I fell in love with Neil and, and I introduced them and they fell in love with each other and then Neil fell in love with Joanna and she fell in love back. Oh, that's 100%. We totally think, I mean, you, you're not the proximate cause of our marriage, but you are certainly a but-for cause of it. Um, and it, we wouldn't have met if it weren't for you. And so, um, absolutely. And I do think, you know, one thing about that ceremony, which I think is interesting to think about, is, you know, Guido's sermon was basically about how a marriage of mixed cultures is an opportunity to add to both cultures, not to lose either of them. Um, and it's something I've thought a lot about. And I think, Akhil, you know, you and I coming with South Asian parents, I think we do carry 
a lot of those values, even if as much as I think maybe when we were growing up, um, wanted to push them away or not acknowledge them quite as much, at least for me. But um, ultimately, it's not surprising to me that I'm sitting here in your office right now, um, as opposed to someone else's office. And um, you know, and I, I, you know, I think about that a lot because um, uh, there is a role for culture. There is a role for role models. Um, and you know, you were the only South Asian law professor, certainly that I knew, and one of I think maybe a couple in the country. Um, and um, you know, I do I do wonder if if I weren't just randomly assigned to your constitutional law class in my first year fall, um, where exactly would I be right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and Jeff, you see, isn't Hindu and and may not have all of that, but but you know, I I fell in love with him too when, when, when I had him in my first semester as I had you in in your first semester. Well, I think your your comment about uh, the uh, Guido's comment anyway about about the opportunity to, to expand yourself through these um, meeting of cultures. I, I saw that at my son's wedding. My son, raised in the Jewish tradition, married a wonderful woman. There are two lawyers there also, um, who, was, who was not Jewish. Um, and the, uh, the ceremony was officiated by a lawyer, a friend of theirs, another Yale graduate. And I, so they kind of designed it themselves, and there were many Jewish traditions in the wedding. And that only happened because my son's wife embraced those traditions and found and, and wanted them. Um, so that, you know, by, by having them in the wedding, you could see that she had already added them to her life. And that, you know, I, I, I appreciated that very much. In some ways, it was more meaningful than if they had both been Jewish and had these traditions because it's just something you do. Whereas here, it was very intentional, very, very designed, and I thought that was, uh, that was very welcome. And I did experience by Zoom um, the bris of, yes. uh, of their <laughs> of firstborn. Their yes. Um, so, you know, you're talking a little bit about how, you know, you got to this point, and, uh, of course, it came through the law in part, and last time, I think you were saying, Neil, that although you face adversaries in court, there's still a certain fellowship of the law. Um, so when you are in the Supreme Court, do you feel that this is an atmosphere that pervades the court? You know, throughout the, uh, that the justices, you know, that not necessarily the litigants, but the, the attorneys and so forth, that, that it's, it's all, you're all part of a, a fellowship of the law? I do. Um, the Chief Justice, when he swears people into the bar, refers to the common calling that we all have. And I think we all feel it um, as members of the Supreme Court bar. And just maybe the most powerful illustration of that is how we will all moot each other for arguments for free. Um, and we'll also moot first-time advocates, people who have never argued before. And in some sense, they're, you know, taking a case away from the Supreme, established Supreme Court bar members, but, and so it's against our economic interests in a way, I guess you could say, or our reputational interests, but we always do it because we view that as part of our job as to help the court because a better advocate, a more prepared advocate, a non-nervous advocate, a honest advocate um, 
all of that aids in the court's search for truth. And I can remember one instance, for example, you know, I, uh, Georgetown Supreme Court Institute moots now every Supreme Court case 100%. But back about eight years ago, it was uh, at about 90%. And there was a case in which someone went, stood up and argued in a moot. And one of the panelists, um, uh, a great professor now at Texas, said to the advocate, if you give that answer, you're actually lying about what the record says, and the court will be all over you. And a few days later, that advocate stood up, gave that answer at the argument, and basically the court took his head off um, in a way I'd never quite seen. And it was good that the court knew that, and you know that's great. But what would, hap would be even worse, of course, if the court didn't recognize it right away during the argument and maybe voted a certain way only to realize that the advocate had misrepresented the record or something like that. So you know, I think it's incredibly important what the members of the bar do in terms of uh, the mooting and getting other folks ready. I will say it is an incredibly intense time in the court. It's kind of like Andy spending a half hour with you. Um, it's a, <laughs> it's a, um, it's a oral argument now is a half hour per side. Um, you know, back in the old days with Daniel Webster and stuff, it was, you know, three days, six days, nine days long, whatever. Just like a Indian a Hindu wedding is three days long normally. <laughs> Yours was short. Mine was compressed to a half hour. Three days to a half hour. That was the dictates from, from the powers above. And that is how the Supreme Court works. These three-day or six-day arguments have now been compressed into a half hour per side. And that leaves you as the advocate very little room to make a mistake. In that sense, it feels a little bit like the Olympics. You know, every kind of fraction of a second can matter. Um, and so um, what I am doing for the weeks before, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through the process of preparing for an argument. But, be very interesting. But, but what I am doing most of all for those weeks before the argument is trying to figure out how to give an answer that doesn't make me lose seconds or frankly even fractions of seconds. And so I'm like, what are the, so, so basically the way I start when I'm preparing for a Supreme Court argument is about three weeks before the argument, I will take and read every brief. Um, and these briefs are about 50 pages long per side. But then there are amicus briefs, so-called friend of the court briefs, which are usually 30 pages. And in some cases, in my big cases, I have 50, 60 of those briefs. Most of them are frankly not that helpful or good to the court or to me, um, but I have to read them all. I take notes on them. And then I create what I call an argument binder, which has every major issue in it um, and all my possible answers to it, all the factual details. And in a big case, my argument binder can run 70 or 80 pages. Um, and then I take a one, a one page out and I make a cheat sheet with the big points and the, ba the big questions and just a few words about each answer to it. And I put that on top of the binder. And my goal is basically to never open the binder during the oral argument. Um, and I will look down at my cheat sheet because sometimes, I, you know, I'm always worried am I forgetting an important point or something like that. Some of the uh, great advocates don't have even that binder or anything. They just go up with nothing. But uh, I have always needed that little crutch. Um, I think only once have I actually opened the binder, and that was in a very complicated foreign affairs case when I was acting solicitor general it was about the Bagram Air Force Base and there was some language that I had 
hashed out with the State Department and Defense Department, which if I got wrong in any either direction could cause a diplomatic or military issue. So at that point, I remember I just actually literally read the answer to the question, which I knew I was going to get. But otherwise, you know, uh, I take that binder and then I do practice sessions. I'm a big fan of doing them. I sometimes will do 10, uh, sometimes only five. But um, I have people throwing questions at me uh, for about an hour. And then I go and I listen, I put that on an MP3 and then I'll exercise to it. I'll go for a run or something and listen. And this is where I think that the skill, if there is any, lies. I'm listening to my question, my answers and I'm saying, can I make that a f- more efficient answer? Can I make it quicker? Can I make it better? Is there something I'm not saying that I should be saying? And then I'm saying, Does the way I'm answering that question invite a question I don't want as a follow-up? Can I tweak the language of the answer so that I avoid that? And then the most dark art version of this, can I answer the question in a way that invites a question I really do want? Um, And so those are kind of the, the stages of kind of, as I'm thinking through answers to the questions, that I'm going through. Um, and then the night before the argument, I will um, go and explain the argument to my kids. And uh, um, even when they were little, um, now they're, they're older, but I will explain it. And, uh, and it, that act of just trying to simplify it for someone else is very important. Um, it just reminds you of the heart of the issue. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Um, what are the key points? I'm going to tell them that they should uh, demand a portion of your fee. <laughs> um, uh, they got it. <laughs> so uh, then, uh, then I wake up um, and I actually will listen to one of my old moots in the morning. Um, and then I'll go to court. And um, it's, I'm always nervous every time I walk in. And every time, if I don't have quite tears in my eyes, I have something close. Because there is something really... Um, magnificent and you feel so lucky to be part of this system in which we're you're walking into a court resolving sometimes some of the biggest issues of the day and you're doing it with words and you're doing it on the up and up with logic and argument and not fisticuffs and um, um, it's a real privilege um, every time you mentioned we, we talked in the last episode about your first appearance before the court in the Hamdan case um, how many have you done since so I've done 44 total. I'll give my 45th argument uh, in uh, on October 13th. Um, and where where does that sort of place you in um, among that one fifth living of Daniel Webster <laughs> <laughs> among uh, among among living? Uh, I, I think Court it's advocates. very good. I don't know exactly where it is. Um, you know, um, there are, you know there are a couple people in the Solicitor General's office like Ed Needler and Malcolm Stewart who are you know know you know Malcolm mm-hmm. um, who are over a hundred and mm-hmm. you know and so on. But um, but you know there aren't there aren't many of us in this you know kind of place at this point. Um, you know, one of the things that's happened really since about 1985, is the emergence of this Supreme Court bar. Um, it existed in the 19th century with Daniel Webster, but then basically faded away. And then Rex Lee, who was uh, President Reagan's Solicitor General, 
created the first practice at Sidley in Austin to specialize in this. And then in, in Supreme Court litigation. In Supreme Court litigation, exactly. And then followed by E. Barry Prettyman and, and John Roberts at, at my firm, Hogan Levels. Um, and now, you know, there are several other places that, that uh, at least claim to have Supreme Court practices. Um, and, um, and, you know, I do think that at this point in time, almost every major Supreme Court case, you've got very experienced Supreme Court advocates on both sides. And just to remind our audience, when you just snuck in John Roberts, the John Roberts, the current Chief Justice the of the United States. The great John Roberts. The great John Roberts um, uh, um, was, before he was a, a D.C. Circuit Judge, before he was Chief Justice of the United States, was uh, an appellate litigator, a, um, a, a Supreme Court bar person at your firm. Correct. So uh, your so, current firm, right? So John Roberts, you know, had exactly the positions I did: principal deputy solicitor general, um, uh, and then he was briefly, I think, acting solicitor general. Came to the law firm for I think about ten years. Argued in total thirty-nine cases at the Supreme Court, and you know, for those of everyone listening, if you want to hear just a great oral argument, just listen to anything John Roberts did. Um, that's what I did before I started doing my arguments. Is I listened to all of his arguments um, and just tried to understand how he did it. And again, what he did, as I talked about in the last episode with you, he was just so straight with the court. He just said what the best argument was on the other side and then answered it. He wasn't playing games. Um, and, you know, it's such a powerful lesson in advocacy, which is if you're you know, it, 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 that you actually project confidence by dealing with the other side's argument head on as opposed to trying to minimize it. Of course, if, you, if that's what one is going to do, if one is going to take the other side's best argument, take it on and present your argument, and do so in an honest way, but you, you may not have the best argument. In other words, <laughs> the other side's argument may actually be better. In, the, in which case, how would that be the right way to approach it? I definitely had one case like that. Honestly, I think, you know, I've generally been very, uh, very happy with the positions I've taken in the courts. But I remember before one of my arguments, um, I, uh, I remember uh, I had just been on a panel with Greg Gar, who was president of Bush's Solicitor General. And, and one of them, this was the National Headmasters Association. And one of the headmasters asked us, what do you do if you stand up? and you're arguing something you don't believe in. And Greg's answer was, that never happens because in the course of preparing for argument, you basically wind up working so much with the client, you see their position, and there's no way you could stand up and disagree with it by the time you get to the podium. So I remember I stood up at the podium, this is my, you know, one of my very first Supreme Court arguments, and I was thinking to myself, I reminded myself of what Greg said and then said, I don't believe a word of what I'm about to say. Zero. Um, and yet I still got three votes, um, which I still to this day don't understand. And yet you were straight with the court, even uh, though you didn't believe it. So how, how, did you, how do you reconcile 
Well, right. because, you know, in the Supreme Court, you have so many different modes, um, you know, in particularly in a constitutional case, as that was. You've got textual, you've got historical, you've got precedent. In that case, I actually did have precedent-based arguments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was like a perfect test case for Akil. I had precedent arguments, but the text and history, and frankly, the logic and structure, none of it made any sense. But I could construct a good argument on a precedent, and so... And it got me three votes. And just to complete the circle for our audience, when Neil talks about different kinds of constitutional arguments, precedent arguments versus text history and structure, he's um, offering, um, uh, he's returning to a template uh, that um, was really um, canonized by um, our friend Philip Bobbitt, the great Philip Bobbitt, Sir Philip Bobbitt, um, uh, in um, his important uh, book, Constitutional Fate, when he actually said he, there are certain kinds of arguments, and when you're making them, you're doing constitutional law. And if you're not making them, you're not doing constitutional law. Like if you say, vote for me because we're part of the same political party, or because um, the Bible says so, or Allah wills it. It's in Quran. There are constitutional traditions in which you can appeal to Quran, Sharia law, or you can appeal to um, uh, um, biblical authority um, if you're um, uh, in the rabbinic court or something like that. Absolutely, mm -hmm. but um, but um, uh, uh, this this is what Philip Bobbitt's first really big contribution to American constitutional law was, he's made many others, is a kind of taxonomy of Supreme Court um, uh, uh, argumentation. So we got onto this because I, I asked a question about this fellowship of the law. And one of the reasons I asked it is because um, there's a, a narrative out there that the judiciary is the most dysfunctional branch, and that's why we need to defang the Supreme Court, and that's why people have made suggestions that the court uh, not be allowed to uh, invalidate a law on constitutional grounds without a supermajority or something like that. Um, but of course, aside from the from the constitutionality of such uh, such a, a questionable uh, initiative, I, I also think that you know, listening to you talk about this, I don't think too many people would speak about Congress in this reverential uh, tone in this day and age. So, it, you know, of course, you worked in the executive branch, um, more so than the legislative branch, but uh, would, do you, and you, Akhil, wrote an op-ed, I believe, last summer, talking about the judiciary, and how, or at least the Supreme Court, and how it's actually functioning better than many people think with the, you know, people crossing party lines. I call it the least so dysfunctional forth. branch of government by far. The branch, I think, that the Which framers, is to say nothing at all. But <laughs> Well, the framers, you know, would recognize as um, uh, what they were hoping for. Um, and, um, and under President Trump, you can't say that about the executive branch. And our Congress is deeply dysfunctional. I've testified before Congress many times and and it's different now than it used to be mm -hmm. and what what about you Neil do you do you feel that the the judiciary is functioning now which is not to say that we might agree with everything that's decided right but so well I've certainly read some of these proposals for like a supermajority before the Supreme Court can strike down legislation and I think the technical legal uh, description of such uh, proposals as poppycock. Um, I just think it's absurd. Um, and uh, 
I do think that there is something to this Supreme Court, um, you know, being overly to use the old word activist in terms of striking down legislation. Uh, so that does concern me. But I think Akhil's 100% right compared to the other branches of government. I mean, the Supreme Court works really, really well. And one of the things that really frustrates me is that the American public can't see it because the Supreme Court has only about 200 seats on any given day for the American public to see themselves in action at oral argument. Um, and I wish the American public could see what I get to see every time I go up there because you know, these are nine incredibly smart people, hardworking people. They're not trying to, you know, like play games, um, you know, the way that folks in Congress are. Um, and it, they write all of their reasons down and written opinions and you can read them and criticize them and so on. So and, you know, there's a you know, they they're not afraid to disagree with one another. Another that's the practice of dissenting. So there's a lot that's really pretty magnificent about this institution. I am worried about kind of the current court in terms of you know how much it maps on to where the heartland of the American people are right now. That does concern me um, absolutely. But again, compared to the other branches. Um, it's it's a really hard thing to make a case that the other two branches should somehow should somehow rein the Supreme Court in, um, you know, uh, given uh, their track record in, over the last few years. And of course, the court has functioned somewhat differently from a mechanical point of view during the COVID uh, pandemic. Yeah, so that's been really interesting. So you know, as I said, I had our oral argument is a half hour per side. And I average about 50 uh, questions in that half hour. Um, so 50 five zero in yeah. 30 minutes. Yeah. So again, it's like it's very rapid. Um, and uh, um, and they are really trying to trip you up, not because they want to trip you up, but, but they're really trying to understand the contours of your position. And this is why Supreme Court advocacy is a totally different skill than other kinds of lawyering because in any other kind of lawyering in a lower court they're bound by precedent and so the question is the judges are asking is what does this case say what does that case say and so on what is the law in the supreme court the question is what should the law be and that's why it's more like being a law professor than it is like being a lawyer because precedent only matters a, a bit at the Supreme Court and even to the extent it matters the questions aren't usually as much around precedent as they are around first principles and the contours of your position um, and that's why you have all these hypotheticals that are being thrown at you so anyway like the normal thing I do it for most of my I guess my first 40 Supreme Court arguments is I'd have one line written down on a legal pad and I'd hope that the justices would let me finish my set one sentence before they'd ask me a question and um, and then they'd all scrub and pile on to each other and ask question after question and the like. And I kind of love that verbal jousting. And um, one of the really interesting things is to understand that the justices are actually often not asking you a question. They're making a point to another fellow justice. So they're actually trying to persuade them. And all you're supposed to do in that case, less is more, is just gently guide the conversation as an interlocutor more than as, you know, an advocate, you know, standing at the podium and arguing your case. Um, and so you're thinking about all of those things. And for the most part, I got about my sentence out in my first 40 arguments. So it was one time when 
It was a very big case uh, involving, uh, I was defending former Attorney General Ashcroft, who was alleged to have abused several thousand people's civil liberties in the war on terror. Um, I was acting Solicitor General, and so that task fell onto me. Everyone thought the newspaper said it's going to be a crazy fireworks argument and so on. So I got up to the podium. I had my sentence. I read my sentence. No questions. <laughs> I'm like, darn, okay. I gave him another sentence. No questions. And then I started thinking, am I dreaming? Because like, I really kind of felt like this has never happened before. But I you know, gave him another paragraph, looked around at the justices. They were smiling at me. So I'm thinking, okay, everything's going okay. I gave him another paragraph. Then Justice Breyer, I think, took pity on me, asked me one question. A long one? <laughs> I don't even know if it was long. Because I sat down, Akil, after I answered it, with 22 minutes to go of my 30-minute oral argument. And people gasped, but I kind of figured this is going well. And it, sure enough, my advocate on the other side stood up 30 relentless hard <laughs> minutes. Um, and then I think I waived my rebuttal. Um, you can get a rebuttal for I had a 22 minute rebuttal uh, time period, but I think I waived it and we won the case 9-0. That was the one time in which I, wa I actually had a lot of speaking time. Now, the interesting thing, uh, after COVID, um, the court issued an order in March of last year that oral argument would be done over the telephone and not over Zoom or anything else. The court is very afraid of cameras in every way, shape, and form. So we literally all had to buy a certain brand of speakerphone. It had to be a landline. And we would then get a call on the morning of the argument. You couldn't call them. They'd call you. And... Uh, and we would do the argument over the phone. And before my first one of these, I realized the day before that I had call waiting and on my phone. And normally you can disable call waiting. I think it's star 70 or something like that, but not if someone's calling you. And so if it's an incoming call. So I had to scramble with the phone company and get an emergency order place to remove call waiting because, you know, the last thing that you wanted to have happen is like you're giving an oral argument at the Supreme Court and, you know, your phone is beeping and maybe disconnects. Um, in any event, um, the justices now have this unusual format where you get two minutes to make an opening statement. Like I never spoke to the justices for two minutes ever uninterrupted, but it's two minutes uninterrupted. Then each justice will take turns asking you questions in order of seniority. And the interesting thing about this is it's meant that Justice Thomas has asked questions. Um, you know, I talked in our episode before about how I looked at him, the entire Voting Rights Act argument, hoping to draw a question. I was just dying for it. I couldn't get that question. And indeed, I think he had only asked one question in, uh, you know, about the last 10 years or something. But now he's, uh, you know, asking just as many questions as every other justice. And um, that's been a nice thing about this. And then at the end of this, so you go and they ask you all questions, each justice, and then you get a minute to wrap up at the end. Again, like this gift that we never had before. I'm not sure, quite honestly, that this is a good format um, for Supreme Court advocacy because it allows, you know, the advocate to filibuster or a justice to filibuster. And because you can't see the justices um, and they can't see you, it's hard to cut one another off. Um, and um, the justices are, are very polite and they don't want to, you know, just jump over an advocate. Um, and so without those verbal cues, it just means fewer questions, 
and not as many follow-ups. In the old system, justice asks you a hard question, just like Akil at a Yale Law School faculty paper. You know, someone asks a hard question, and then other people follow that line of thought um, and jump in. Um, that's what Supreme Court advocacy has been like until COVID. Now it's just nine disparate sets of questions. Do you foresee it going back to the old uh, you know, format once uh, the justices feel comfortable with the resolution of the pandemic? Absolutely. I think that the court will, in the very first opportunity, go back. Indeed, I am thinking that my October argument very well may be in person and back in the old format. I think the justices have been frustrated by this format, too, it sure seems to me. And uh, so in the coming term, I don't know, you know what it's going to be, whether, whether, we'll be, whether you'll be back in the, in the courtroom or not, um, but uh, there's certainly some interesting cases coming up. Um, now, there's uh, some cases on abortion, is that right? Correct. So there's a case out of Mississippi, which, um, you know, Roe versus Wade says that you can't restrict, if you're a state, you can't restrict abortion pre-viability, which is understood, I think, to be about the 24th or 25th week. And uh, Mississippi restricts it uh, after 15 weeks. And Mississippi understood at the time they passed the law that the law was inconsistent with Roe versus Wade, um, and they were creating a test case. And so much so that they actually told the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, don't even bother hearing oral argument in this case. We're just trying to go to the Supreme Court. So, you know, don't bother. And the, the Court of Appeals said that it was unconstitutional under Roe versus Wade and a decision written by a very conservative Fifth Circuit judge, but who was applying the law and precedent as it was written. Again, kind of underscoring that idea that Supreme Court advocacy is very different than advocacy in the lower courts, because the question in the lower courts is just, what does Roe mean? The question in the Supreme Court, which is now teed up for oral argument this fall, is should Roe versus Wade be overruled? And indeed, Mississippi has just filed their brief uh, recently um, at the beginning of July and asked expressly for the overruling of Roe versus Wade. And uh, how do you handicap this case? What do you, you know, what what are the good? What are the best arguments on either side? Well, uh, you know, this is one in which the law, you know, it's, it's, you know, these are unusual, like abortion, affirmative action, guns, you know, some of the other big social question cases. It's not ultimately as much about first legal principles as much as judicial philosophy. And it's also about things outside of the court. Um, you know, that uh, the Mississippi case asks the Supreme Court to do something that, if it does it, will put it in political crosshairs for a generation, um, overruling Roe versus Wade. Um, and, you know, there's certainly a lot of people who want it overruled, and there's a lot of people who don't. Um, and Roe versus Wade is one of the few cases that most Americans know by name. Um, to overrule it is to really um, inject the Supreme Court into the thicket of politics. And if it happens next year, right before a congressional midterm. Um, so I think that it's hard, you know, and that's the unusual case in which the court is doing something beyond law itself. Um, and uh, the Chief Justice, I think, like the great Chief Justice John Marshall does care about 
where that court sits in public opinion, in the eyes of history, and the like. Um, and that means that, you know, uh, it, that uh, I, I think he's going to try and moderate some of what some of his colleagues on the right might otherwise want to do. At the same time, Mississippi has made it really hard for him because this law is inconsistent with Roe versus Wade. So it's not like he can do an easy dance and say, I'm preserving Roe versus Wade, but siding with Mississippi in some way or another. And of course, because Amy Coney Barrett has now replaced Justice Ginsburg, um, he's, his vote may not actually be the decisive one anymore. It's hard to know. Um, Justices, Ka Justice Kavanaugh votes with the Chief Justice 94% of the time. Um, and even when they were colleagues on the D.C. Circuit, the nation's you know, so-called second highest court, they overwhelmingly voted together. They have very similar judicial outlooks. So on the one thought, you could say if the chief can persuade Justice Kavanaugh to do something more moderate, you may not get a full overruling of Roe versus Wade next year. But that's the chief's task. He has to actually do that. You know, before, when Justice Ginsburg was on the court, the Chief Justice was a swing vote. Now it's the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh as the swing votes on this issue. From a different point of view, um, a perspective maybe closer to our conversation about different kinds of constitutional arguments, um, Sir Philip Bobbitt's uh, different modalities of constitutional argumentation, text, history, structure, precedent, um, which is a, a different template than left versus right, conservative versus liberal, you know, the, the take is as follows. Um, uh, Rose a precedent, to be sure, stare decisis, but the Constitution's the supreme law of the land, and if you're an originalist, you pay particular attention to the text, history, and structure of the Constitution, um, and it's not um, uh, you know, a state secret at this point that a lot of people think that Roe, um, even if it's a precedent, didn't do a good job at all of connecting its uh, rules um, and uh, its um, ruling to the text, history, and structure of the Constitution. Um, and from that point of view, um, which then Professor Amy Coney Barrett actually wrote about what do you do, forget left versus right, if you think precedent is deeply inconsistent with uh, the original meaning of, of, of the Constitution's um, words. Um, um, let's take the court in uh, its maybe most famous uh, 20th century case, um, other than Roe, um, Brown versus the Board of Education, what do you do if you really think the text says equal and equal means equal, and the precedent, Plessy versus Ferguson, is playing fast and loose with that. So you got precedent on one side and um, uh, text and history on, on the other. Um, so, so Roe is going to be, uh, this new case is going to be a very interesting uh, methodological uh, uh, crossroads also. Uh, Roberts is not so much of an originalist. Uh, Kavanaugh, as Neil said, 
sides with Roberts, but talked more of an originalist game when um, uh, um, uh, earlier in in his career. You've got self-described originalists on the court, um, and so uh, uh, all of that is is in play as well. As we you know from Andy from previous episodes, I'm more of an originalist. I'm more skeptical of claims by Elena Kagan, uh, who is my friend, and others that it's really all about precedent. Um, what Justice Breyer um, wrote in his first big abortion case, Stenberg versus Carhart, now 20 years ago, and I kind of went after him um, in the Harvard Law Review. We, um, uh, our audience he heard that um, in our first episode on Breyer, because I didn't think he did a great job connecting um, Roe and the court's abortion jurisprudence to text history and structure. Roe itself sort of talks about due process. Um, other folks have said, oh, we have to talk about women's equality, which is a key constitutional concept. Um, we're going to hear from Jeff Rosen, um, and Neil's um, uh, brother-in-law, at, at a certain point. Jeff very famously and bravely um, in uh, a chapter of a book co-edited by my colleague Jack Balkin. The book is called But Roe versus Wade should have said he got about 11 scholars to, to write their own imagined concurring or dissenting opinions in Roe versus Wade. I was a little mealy-mouthed, actually. I, I was one of the people, and I kind of punted, and I said, well, this, this law in Roe is unconstitutional because it limits women, and um, it comes from a Texas legislature from the 19th century where no women voted. So that doesn't seem right at all that you can have a law so drastically limiting the prospects of women, um, life prospects, when women aren't even voting. Oh, but if the law were passed today, when women do vote, that might be a different case. We don't need to decide that. Okay, that was my little pun. But, but Jeff, who is personally very strongly pro-choice, said, gee, I read the Constitution, I really don't see this right in the text history and, and, and structure of the document, and my politics should be different than my judicial philosophy. We'll hear Jeff you know, make that um, uh, case uh, uh, if we ask him that question when he comes um, on, on the podcast. Well, you know, so, you said, you know, text history and structure on one side and precedent perhaps on the other side. Um, but usually when we talk about precedent, we're talking about you know, the court's precedent, um, because, uh, you know, the court relies on its own precedent sometimes for decision making. But then Neil pointed out that this is one of the few cases that everyone knows mm -hmm. and so forth. And so there's a certain and, level and, and, of precedent and, in the and, public mind. Yeah. And, and, and you know what everyone else knew? Just, you know, just anticipate the argument Pressing. on their side. Yes. So right. candor, you know, well, what's the strong argument? That's rather than anticipating the argument, let's make the argument. Yeah. Um, so, so Plessy so, was well, well known too. I think Akhil's articulated what you will hear from some of the conservative justices yeah. next year for sure, yeah. um, which is, you know, precedent can't ever trump text, history, um, uh, you know, structure of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. I think what the other side is going to say, however, is, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade itself may not be on the strongest of footings, but as the case comes to the court, it's, it's, it's Roe versus Wade as interpreted in Planned Parenthood versus mm -hmm. Casey, mm -hmm. which does articulate a different, not Ninth Amendment privacy argument, but one based on equal protection of the laws, which is a stronger argument. Mm -hmm. This is an argument famously made by uh, by then Judge Ginsburg uh, in her Madison lectures. Um, now, whether or not that can get five votes, I don't know. And this connects, I think, to something we were talking about earlier, which is the dysfunction 
of our political system because, you know, we do live in a world in which a majority of Americans are, do believe that, you know, in Roe versus Wade and uh, and in choice. And uh, Congress could take this off of the Supreme Court's, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically take this away from the Supreme Court without you know stripping it of jurisdiction or anything by just passing a law under its what's called its preemption power. The supremacy clause allows the federal government to regulate uh, states and localities on matters of health. That's why we have like the food and drug laws and so on. And if they wanted to, they could pass a law to basically guarantee Roe versus Wade to women in all 50 states. And on that, which is really so interesting, Neil, there, there is a, 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 an article um, written by um, one of my uh, former students, Robbie Flato, on just this. Um, he hasn't published it yet. Um, but does Congress have that power? Here are some of the relevant cases. Neil says, well, it's, it's regulating health care. That's the Sibelius case, which we talked about in our earlier episode. Does Congress have power um, to do this? Because it sees this as a civil right, a, a human right, even if the court doesn't. That connects to Congress's power to, to enforce the Reconstruction Amendment, which takes us back to the, um, uh, the, the Shelby County and Holder case and the Mudno case before it, which Neil argues. So it's really interesting how these, that what Neil just said, connects to some of the cases that he himself has had such a, a personal connect, stake in. How does it connect to Sibelius if that was decided on the tax basis? Well, four justices thought it was on, mm-hmm. uh, thought right. the Commerce Clause power. Exactly. And when I moved to Neil, I said, listen, I agree with you about commerce, but, but don't give up this other thing because tax may more persuade John mm-hmm. Roberts yeah. than, than uh, uh, commerce. But, you know, it is to me, you know, like this Congress could do this by a simple majority vote tomorrow. The argument on the other side is, well, there'll be a filibuster and so on. It is a little weird to me to think that the Republicans have established the precedent that you don't need a filibuster. The filibuster doesn't apply to a Supreme Court nominee, so that all of Trump's appointees didn't have 60 votes. They had, you know, mid-low 50s. Um, But those folks can get on uh, to the Supreme Court and have lifetime appointments. But here, when you're dealing with a piece of legislation on one narrow decision that these justices would hand down, that's subject to 60 votes. I don't know. It sounds a little bit like some of these crazy proposals about supermajorities on the Supreme Court to overrule legislation. Well, but, that's, the, but that's where Joe Manchin is, yeah. you know, right now. Right or, now. Or, or, yeah. or, or Kirsten Sinema. Yeah. Or, or maybe President Biden, who's gone back and forth a bit on, on the filibuster. Correct. And our audience knows that I've always been in favor of the so-called nuclear option. I consider myself kind of... The father of the nuclear option. I mean, sure. I mean, if we, we could agree that they can get rid of the filibuster, but uh, but if they haven't, I mean, currently the filibuster rules apply to legislation as opposed to appointments. Right. And that's, so what, forth. that's what Neil was just saying. Right. Yeah. But I mean, but this is a this would pretty clearly be legislation, even though it it's, would be legislation. But it would be legislation. You know, it it starts to really, I think, uh, a law a bill like this really starts to call into question 
how these filibuster rules make any sense. Like, you don't have it for a lifetime Supreme Court nominee, which is Roe versus Wade times a million because they cast so many different votes on so many different things, but you do on legislation to overrule, you know, or to codify Roe versus Wade. It's just a weird, uh, you know, if, if you're an alien landing from Mars and you looked at the system, you'd say, this just can't make any principled sense. That's a real, you know, Neil, I had never quite thought of that. It's a very interesting take. Thank you. Well, it's, I think it's actually ironic that you bring up this take in the irrelevant to Roe versus Wade because what's kind of the history of, of abortion law since then has been a well, sort of a chipping away, you know, of, of the power of that decision. And so, too, has the filibuster been chipped away at, you know, in, 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 mm. in this sense. That's also um, a very interesting point. So, the, so they're both uh, kind of sausages, I think, you know, in that sense. So, all right, so that's, that case is, is obviously extremely important. Um, there's also an affirmative action case coming, is that yeah, right? Yeah, so that's a, we, we don't know if the court will take it or not. They've been asked to take it. So this involves Harvard University's admissions program. And, and just by way of disclosure, I'm, I'm representing Yale in a separate challenge to their affirmative action program. Uh, is Yale for Harvard or against Harvard? <laughs> <laughs> this case, that wasn't dropped yet? Uh, the the Justice Department dropped, you know, Trump's Justice Department, you know, uh, filed a lawsuit and that was dropped. Um, but now a group of private plaintiffs ah. uh, or mm -hmm. a private plaintiff, uh, you know, has has brought a, a lawsuit. Um, what a surprise. Yeah. So uh, so this asks really the I question. I knew we'd find a way to get Yale into the conversation. <laughs> Andy is now very, very happy. Um uh, this lawsuit asks whether Harvard's program, which is a standard kind of diversity-based program, uh, is unconstitutional because it discriminates on the basis of race. Now, you might say, how could it be unconstitutional? Harvard University is a private actor. Uh, but Title VI says that if you are a private inst educational institution taking federal funds, then you are subject to the same kind of constitutional rules as state actors. So in prior years, the Supreme Court's had cases involving University of California at Davis, University of Michigan, University of Michigan Law School, University of Texas. This case is now a private educational institution, but generally I think understood to be subject to the same rules. Uh, the Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in a long decision said the U.S. Supreme Court has for many years permitted race-based diversity affirmative action programs in higher education. And so they upheld the program on that basis. Um, the composition of the Supreme Court has changed since the last time the justices had an affirmative action case in 2016 in the Texas case. Um, you now have Justices Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh on. Um, they could be, uh, some say, the deciding votes. And so there has been a lot of conservative attention based on trying to bring the Harvard case to the United States Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court did something pretty interesting uh, about a month ago. What they said was, we are going to ask the U.S. Solicitor General for their official views on whether we should take the case or not. And so that will put the case's consideration back considerably. It's possible that the Supreme Court will hear it this term if the Solicitor General agrees, even if they don't agree, even if the Solicitor General says don't hear it, the U.S. Supreme Court might still hear it anyway. That might happen by the close of next term, so with a decision by June of 2022. But I suspect that 
this is on a little bit of a slower trajectory and we'd probably be looking at June of 2023 for an affirmative action decision. And, you know, there are certainly people out there, conservatives uh, in particular, who are saying as of June 2023, there will be no more affirmative action in higher education in the United States. Um, they feel so confident. I'm certainly not uh, where they are. Um, and I think that um, the history of affirmative action in the university setting has been a good one um, with important, powerful consequences for society. And, you know, if educational institutions want to get rid of affirmative action on their own, it's certainly their prerogative to do so. I don't think affirmative action is constitutionally compelled uh, and that someone ha an institution has to have it or a state has to have it. Um, but I certainly think it's within the discretion of university administrators uh, if done in a reasonable way in the way that the Supreme Court has said. On that uh, point, since we talked before about um, your wedding, one um, of my most fond memories, your, your Om Shalom wedding, uh, uh, American Jews, many of them have been somewhat skeptical of certain kinds of affirmative action, which calls to mind um, memories of quotas for them. Uh, in some of these cases, the claim is that affirmative action for, I'm going to be very blunt, African Americans and maybe Hispanic Americans is coming on the backs of Asian Americans, or to be very specific, um, two things are going on. Affirmative action for historically underrepresented groups uh, like blacks and Hispanics, but also, in addition to that affirmative action, affirmative discrimination against Asian Americans such that one actually has to have higher uh, credentials to get in as an Asian American than as a white. Now, those those things, I think, are conceptually distinguishable. You could have affirmative action that doesn't come on the backs of Asian Americans. You could have affirmative action without, in fact, affirmative discrimination by um, uh, schools, um, uh, in, in effect, in favor of whites at the expense of Asian Americans. How do we think about all that? Yeah, so I think that is what the plaintiffs have been trying to do, is find sympathetic plaintiffs that can basically pit one race against another. Um, that's the litigation strategy. You know, I get it. Um, you know, at least for the school I'm most familiar with, I'm very comfortable in watching the number of Asians go up that are admitted every year uh, and uh, feel very confident that um, there's nothing going on on the backs of, you know, Asians. Um, so regarding affirmative action, you know, we go back to the days of Baki, you know, the, some of the original affirmative action cases. I think as a as a citizen, the perception at that time, uh, in terms of the justification for affirmative action, was that it was a uh, a way to uh, make up for past wrongs, to create a situation where um, you know the there was appropriate representation of various minority groups, if not a quota, but still roughly proportionate to percentage to you know their presence in the population, plus maybe a little to make up for the fact that there were too many people that have had the chance before to kind of equalize opportunities downstream and employment and so forth. And that once that was accomplished, the need for this would go away. But in the Baki decision, uh, the inherent value of diversity was brought up as a justification for the, uh, for the program. And the difference that I see is that the former has a time limit, the latter doesn't. 
Um, so, uh, and does this have any legal import? And what does it, you know, what does it say about how one would approach it? Uh, so, and another way of, of Andy, that's great, and framing that is, a lot of people originally believed in affirmative action as a kind of remedy and reparations project, and that might have been especially focused on. African Americans, given the history of, of slavery in America, uh, and the court ended up talking instead about the diversity rationale, which is a little different, um, and and that does have different implications, maybe. But Neil um, um, uh, may have some thoughts about that. So I was going to say, Andy, that that it was a very elegant way of putting the Baki rationale as opposed to the earlier. So you know, you could think about. Affirmative Action 1.0 is being the kind of compensatory rationales you're articulating, and then Justice Powell's opinion in Bakke, the diversity rationale being version 2.0. Um, Akhil and I have actually written about this, and we actually think version 1.0 doesn't have a logical stopping point, um, and that that's a problem with it. That, um, you know, when when do you stop making up for past wrongs? It's very hard. Where's that line going to look like? And yes, diversity, you know, maybe has that too, but in a, I think actually that's a feature, not a bug. That is, you know, when diversity programs are done right, they're not just about race. They're about admitting people to a university that allows students to teach uh, one another, learn from one another. And that's, you know, certainly the case, you know, as, you know, like I, as I think back on my college and law school experiences in meeting people of different races from different cities, but also meeting people of different political persuasions, um, sexual orientation, you know, other things as well, you know, extracurriculars, flute players, whatever, you know, um, all of that is part of the diversity rationale when done right. And that's what Justice Powell was talking about. He said, if you're only doing race, if that's your only diversity, that's really just you're actually doing a compensatory 1.0 program and just, you know, coloring it up or dressing it up, excuse me, dressing it up with, uh, with, uh, with diversity talk. But if you're actually genuinely serious about it, no, it shouldn't have a logical stopping point because every university should be committed to this, you know, uh, across every dimension, uh, race being one of them. Now, at some point, perhaps race becomes a... Uh, insignificant feature of the American experience. Um, you know, it's certainly not going to be in our lifetimes, but at some point that is, and at that point, then adding that person with the diversity rationale doesn't make any sense. Now, of course, I think there's there's a, a little bit of an echo of the uh, of the voting rights cases of, of Holder and so forth, but um, in terms of the question of stopping points. Um, because that was that was you know part of the issue in Holder, wasn't it? That uh, that the that Justice Roberts believed that uh, well, there's been you know nothing going on in North Carolina for you know however long or whatever you know, and so that therefore it's okay. Yeah, um, I think the Supreme Court said, oh, there's no more racism in America. <laughs> um, that um, wasn't uh, I think the court's best prophecy. In the same way as in you know Clinton versus Jones, the Paula Jones case. Uh, the Supreme Court said, oh, you know, you don't ever have to worry about painting a target around the president because ordinary litigation tactics will prevent that. So, you know, I think both times the court, you know, I think erred, um, you know, and I think right now we are seeing the very painful consequences of the Supreme Court's Shelby County decision in 2013 with, you know, 30 different uh, 
bill, 30 different laws being passed in 18 states just in the last few months to restrict voting um, and making it harder for people to vote. And so, you know, the beauty of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was at issue in Shelby County and in the Northwest Austin case that I talked about in our prior episode, what it said was, if you change, uh, you know, if you're a, a, a jurisdiction and you change voting practices, you got to get it cl cleared in advance by the Justice Department or by a federal court. And, you know, sometimes you have a good reason. Maybe, you know, you want to move your polling place to a place that's more populated or whatever, easier to get to. Fine, just tell the court why you're doing it, no problem. The problem was that these southern states in particular had gotten ingenious in changing voting, uh, voting polling practices and stuff right before an election and making it hard for people to vote. And so that's why Section 5 was written the way it did. Now, Section 5 did have, in one sense, a flaw um, or a problem, which is it only applied to some of the worst offending jurisdictions, mostly in the South, but also other places. And the Chief Justice in 2013 in Shelby County uh, said that that violated the equal footing doctrine of the United States Constitution. Now, I've read the Constitution hundreds of times. I've looked pretty hard for that equal footing doctrine. I just don't see it anywhere in there whatsoever. It's entirely made up. There is no principle that says that Congress can't treat one state differently from another, particularly when one has a history of being a bad offender when it comes to something as fundamental as voting. So I've never thought that the Chief Justice's opinion in 2013 made much constitutional sense. Um, but, you know, we, ha we have it. It's on the books now. Um, you know, and, you know, again, the kill this connects to something you said earlier about people who care about text and the Constitution versus precedent. You know, it's a little hard to claim that you are a textualist and care about the text of the Constitution if you signed on to Shelby County, because that is just textually entirely made up. Um, uh, so, so that's one thing I'd say, and then I'd say it a different way. I would say there are things in the Constitution that are structural: federalism, separation of powers. I do think actually that there is an equal footing principle that goes all for the way admission. back to the Northwest Ordinance for admissions of new states. But even a principle that that you shouldn't discriminate against states willy nilly. But I would say. We aren't. There's a reason that some states were Correct. on this list and others weren't, because some states actually had bad track records of voting rights. And, and that you can was get off the list. And you can be put on the list. Exactly. exactly. So smart. We, exactly. we, so we are in agreement. And, and, ba and, and bail out. That's what exactly. that's that, and, and, and so it really didn't, right. it but, didn't violate, even if you think there is a an equal, um, uh, an equal treatment of states principle rightly understood, that means you actually have to treat states that are alike in similar ways. And alike here would be the states that are, have, have uh, behaved themselves um, are alike, and the states that have misbehaved Correct. are alike, and, and some states really have misbehaved. Right. It's like so, saying you can't treat a felon differently. Exactly. Yeah, so. Right. so now, unfortunately, we have that decision on the books, and that's why the legislation in Congress, to get around that, is just going to apply Section 5 to everyone um, and just say, whatever jurisdiction you are, you've got to get a preclearance uh, permission in advance. Um, and, you know, I'm a big fan of that legislation.
And that connects back up to what we talked about before about um, not just broad congressional power over interstate commerce, but broad congressional power to enforce basic human rights and voting rights. And that's the key. And I would say that's why I'm an originalist of a certain sort, because those principles actually are in the text of the Constitution. Congress will have power. Congress will have power. Congress will have power. And just to flesh this out um, for for your listeners um, who may not be as familiar with the constitutional text you're talking about, you're pointing to our second founding, our reconstruction. You're pointing to the enforcement clauses of the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, which say Congress shall have the power to enforce equal protection or no abridgment of voting on account of race. Special powers that were given by those amendments. They're not in the original Constitution, but if you're an originalist, they're just as much part of our Constitution uh, as you know the first ten. And, and since you use the phrase second founding, this is a phrase now very prominently associated with the National Constitution Center, whose president is Jeff Rosen, and one of their big, big projects is to remind Americans about the second founding, and it's why I'm very proud of Jeff and what he's doing at the National Constitution Center, which I helped actually to found many, many years ago, and that does take us full circle in yet another interesting way. Speaking of foundings, so um, <laughs> the, the last, uh, there are many you know, classifications of cases, types of cases that are coming up before the court, of course, in the, in the next term. But um, in the previous term, of course, you were involved with a case called Fulton, um, which is kind of a package of cases, I think, that we've seen in recent years and will see in years going forward, um, sort of religious uh, exemption cases and, you know, individual choices or putting, putting one group's choice against another's. Um, you know, how would you characterize those cases, and what can you tell yeah. us about the Fulton case? Um, I'm, you know, I tend to be personally very respectful toward those who are religious, but at the same time, I am worried that the Supreme Court is starting to go off the deep end when it comes to free exercise claims at the Supreme Court. So maybe I'll start by just talking about what this Fulton case was about and then broadening the discussion to the other cases that the Supreme Court has been thinking about. So. Uh, and on Fulton, um, you were involved? Yeah, I argued Fulton. So I argued it for the city of Philadelphia. So basically, the city of Philadelphia has had um, a foster care program for, for you know decades. And what it does is it contracts with 30 private agencies uh, to screen potential foster care parents. Um, and those uh, agencies ask parents, you know, about their, you know, health and, you know, uh, practices and their finances, all sorts of stuff, just to make sure they're suitable parents for these vulnerable children. Uh, a newspaper in Philadelphia a few years ago did a, an undercover investigation in which it was revealed that two of those 30 agencies discriminated against LGBT parents. So they wouldn't screen them. They said it violated their religious precepts to screen them uh, to determine whether or not they met the state's secular criteria for being a good foster care parent. So the, st- the city called these two and they said, look, you know, we have a non-discrimination policy. We've had it since, I think, 1961. It's had sexual orientation in it since 1982, gender identity since, I think, 2003. Uh, and, you know, are you violating this? And ultimately, those two agencies said, yes, we are. We, it's against our religion. One agency changed its practice in response to the inquiry. The other said no. So 
That agency called Catholic Social Services had about $26 million in contracts with the city. The city said, look, you know, uh, about $24 million in the contracts aren't about foster care screening. You're not discriminating. Uh, you're just taking care of foster children. And so we'll continue that. But with respect to the screening part of the contract, since you are discriminating, that violates our non-discrimination ordinance. And so we are going to not renew your contract. At that point, the, agent, the private agency sued the city and said it's our constitutional right to get this money. And the case went to the Court of Appeals, um, and uh, uh, the Court of Appeals said city is, uh, is absolutely in the right. Uh, you know yeah, that if you're taking private, if you're taking government funds, you have to obey the government's non-discrimination policy. That the government was, you know, the government could have screened the foster care parents on their own and not discriminated. And so, if they're going to use a private agency to do that, then they can extend that same non-discrimination requirement to the private agency because the private agency is under no compulsion to take these funds. They could just not screen kids altogether. Anyway, um, that's the way the case went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, the, the Catholic agency wanted to use this case to overrule a earlier Supreme Court decision from 1990 called Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, and Employment Division versus Smith was written by Justice Scalia, uh, obviously one of the most prominent conservative jurists of the time. And what he said is that if you have a law of general applicability that isn't infected by some sort of hostility to religion, then it can be applied even if it has a disproportionate effect on a religious community. So the question in that case was about peyote, uh, which is a hallucinogen, but also taken as a sacrament by Native Ameri by certain Native American tribes. And what Justice Scalia said is, well, you can enforce the laws against peyote, even against the tribes, even if it has a disproportionate impact on the tribes, because it's a law of general applicability done for health and safety. So here, the city, you know, and I argued the case in the Supreme Court, we said basically the same thing. This is a general applicability thing. It's not just geared at Catholic social services. You could be any religious entity or any non-religious entity if you prohibited, uh, you know, screening of LGBT uh, foster parents on the basis of whatever your belief may be. That violates the non-discrimination clause. And what the challengers said was, well, you know, we got to get rid of Employment Division versus Smith because it's impairing the free exercise of religion. And, um, you know, so I argued the case in the court. Um, and fortunately, uh, the, the court was focused not really on that big question of overruling Employment Division versus Smith as much as the factual particulars of this case. Um, they took the view, ultimately, that the city had shown some hostility to religion in enforcing its policy. Um, you know, I respectfully disagree with that, um, you know, for reasons that I've said elsewhere. Um, but nonetheless, that's where the court was. And so a kind of big fireworks holding uh, didn't happen in that case. But that is certainly what is being teed up now. 
state after state has anything from you know masking requirements to vaccination requirements to requirements about gathering in uh, you know in spaces and banning you know congregate you know banning you know groups of people uh, in churches but in other places and so one of the things the court has been starting to get into is this question about whether these generally applicable laws demonstrate a hostility to religion, uh, making it harder for people to go to church or to sing in church. And some of the laws, you know, in some jurisdictions probably have been motivated by an anti-religious bias. They, you know, let people go and gamble and do all sorts of stuff, but not go to church. Um, and even though it has, you know, so they exempt certain institutions from, um, from these requirements. And so those ones are obviously more vulnerable. But I do think you know, we're starting to face some of these ultimate questions about whether, you know, religion is being abused. Um, there's a case that I think was just argued in the Sixth Circuit or will be in which some entities said that uh, religious entities said that wearing masks violates their religious precepts because God's design is to show uh, is God's design can't be altered. And so people have to be able to show their face because that's part of God's design to which I thought, well, you know, that's a kind of problem with clothes too. <laughs> um, so, uh, Not to mention beards and so forth. But. Yeah, but of course we can't judge the standards of any religious belief by logic. Every religion is, will fail that from the point of view of the, the, the non-believer. No, but as long I do want to sincere. make sure that it is sincere. Right, as long I as feel, it's sincere. I mean, right. no, I'm no, worried we're, about we're, the Church we're, of we're, Timothy Leary yes. and you we're, know, we're, Jim Morrison. We're, we're in agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, on, uh, I want to make one point because I know Neil has to, uh, we're coming close to, the, close to the end of our, our time and Neil needs to head out at a certain point. Uh, on the facts of Fulton, um, it, um, I think there was a particularly strong argument for it, the city, um, and the city ends up losing. They're not merely regulating some um, private group. Um, um, uh, the, the city is um, uh, farming out, um, subcontracting, um, I would say, an inherently government function, which is who, who has custody over another over human being. The most vulnerable people in our society. So, so this this isn't Absolutely. actually a place that's the acme of private freedom, like a private church meeting on Sunday. This is the discharge of a public 100%. function um, that, and, and there... It's page one of our brief, Akil, and page two, and probably 15 other pages in the brief. <laughs> well, okay. And, of course, the oral argument. Uh, and that got me zero votes. Zero votes. votes. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm with you, bro. I feel your pain. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, discussion about whether, about over and and, and, I, and I was for the, the Baker, I'm sorry, in the Masterpiece K case, because... That guy seemed to me very private, um, but this is a, a pub a, a, you know, with his own little bake shop. This is an inherently public function, deciding who has custody of other vulnerable human beings. I'm sorry, Andy, I cut you off. I was just going to say there was a lot of discussion in the dissents and so forth about overruling Smith. Um, it seemed to me that uh, Justice Gorsuch and well, I think Alito and, and Thomas are ready to do that. Um, but uh, and, Kavanaugh and Barrett, though, less so. And in our next episode, we're going to return to Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. Um, and uh, I'm going to actually talk about one interesting paragraph, perhaps the most 
interesting paragraph that Amy Coney Barrett wrote in her first term on the court in a concurrence in that case, joined by Justice Kavanaugh, who usually actually, as Neil says, allies himself with Chief Justice Roberts. And that paragraph, even though it doesn't mention some of my scholarship, may have actually, you know, been influenced by some things that I actually um, have written about uh, the free exercise clause, about Smith and, and, and related issues. And it's even possible that Justice Barrett wrote the paragraph she did, which is very careful and cautious, because of um, a, a paragraph in uh, the brief that Neil and his colleague Tom Schmidt actually filed um, uh, talking about some of my historical scholarship on the 14th Amendment and its relationship to the First Amendment. First Amendment's about free exercise, um, but the 14th Amendment comes along um, and applies those principles against the states. And because Neil is a scholar, as well as, you know, an advocate, and his colleague Tom Schmidt, one of my other favorite students of all time, and who's worked with, with, with Neil, and um, who's on the teaching market now and would be absolutely great, because they are scholars as well as litigators. Uh, Tom also clerked for, for Justice Breyer. Um, they actually, I think, teed up for the justices some interesting scholarship of, of mine and, and of other folks on um, originalism, a way of thinking about free exercise, and maybe A.B. Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh were a little bit more cautious in that case because of a paragraph that, that, that Tom and Neil put in their brief. You know, as we get ready to close, I, I can't help but think that um, uh, of something that, ha that went on in my life that, me, that may be corresponding to, to what you may be experiencing. Um, so, uh, you know, I was an eye surgeon, and I was one of the first surgeons to be doing laser vision correction, and everybody wanted to talk about laser vision correction. So every time you're at a party, you know, or whatever, that's all you, 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 it's your life, is talking about, about this thing. And, and, uh, and, and your Little League team was known as? Yes, Lipka's Lasers. <laughs> um, so perhaps partially my fault but that this phenomenon occurred. But, but anyway, you know, in your case, here you are, everybody considers themselves a, an expert on the Constitution, um, and, or at least is interested in it, and you're, you know, so prominently involved with it. Do you find that you are you spend your your leisure life or your social life um, engaged in discussion of this, and do you enjoy that, um, or or not? I love it. Um, I don't get, I'm sure, the kind of deep constitutional questions as often as Akil does, because Akil thinks those thoughts his career is dedicated to them. I tend to get questions like for the last four years, all sorts of stuff about Trump and can you indict a sitting president and you know all you know all the kind of crazy things he was doing and are they legal or illegal and you know that kind of stuff. So they tend to be more specific about the questions at hand um, or maybe some cases that are at hand, some of the prominent cases, than they are about like you know tell me about federalism or tell me about separation of powers or something like that. Um, you know, and both sets of questions are important, but I think what, what you all are doing in this podcast by drawing attention to the latter set of questions, which aren't as always talked about in the public discourse, is really important. So this was really fantastic. Thank you so much, Thank Neil Katyal, and good luck in your cases this year, whatever they turn out to be. Um, Neil, and, that was, in a word, great. <laughs> Thank you. 
great to be with both of you.